Hello and welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. In this episode, we speak about insurance pools as a potential solution for education financing. This week's guests are Professor Victor Minaldo, Amos Chi, Morgan Wack, and myself, Nicholas Wichtuck. I thought I would start with just some basics on why I was interested in this topic, which is about insurance pools, income insurance pools, basically, but also about this other vehicle that's like them, which is um, an ISA, they call them. Uh, which is the way that folks finance their education by other uh, investors taking an equity stake in their earnings. Yeah. And I, th- I think that, um, I forget what ISA stands for. It must be income something. Ah, there you go. Perfect. Thanks, Morgan, for bailing us out. Income share agreement. So the reason I was interested in this stuff, and I'm really happy that Morgan and Nick are here because they wrote a blog post on the... Um, insurance pools is uh, that they would share their thoughts and and, um, about the the potential of these things and where they see them going and their track record so far. The basic things I'll say is there's two ways of financing um, things when you're cash strapped. And one is to borrow money uh, at a fixed rate and you've got to repay that loan um, you get to keep the upside because the investor, in this case, the creditor only gets an interest rate, which is fixed, or it could be variable, but still it's pretty much set. Uh, or you can sell an equity stake in uh, a company, an idea or whatever, and owe nothing uh, per se, but in, an investor gets a slice of the upside. So, so that's the big difference between borrowing money at a fixed rate, you get all the upside Uh, But the investor, in this case, the creditor, really doesn't have much risk except the idea that you might not pay them back. But on the um, equity side, like if you're selling shares in yourself or your idea or doing it to finance your education, the investor takes a risk but gets potentially a lot on the upside in terms of a proportion of your earnings. And so the big puzzle I was struck with and why I love the uh, blog post by uh, Morgan and Nick is... Why isn't that more folks um, sell an equity stake in their future earnings, right? Why is it that they can borrow money from a bank or even a friend at whatever interest rate? That's pretty common. Uh, But when it comes to these equity arrangements, it's very, very rare. And so just things I thought about, and it's nothing special. I I share these thoughts with many other uh, people writing about this is that getting a loan from a bank is straightforward because of collateral or because of um, a credit score, like uh, something that gives you a sense of the reputation of the person borrowing the money. So if you think about the collateral, well, if there are property rights to collateral such that a bank could, let's say, foreclose on a defaulted property, let's say you take out a, a mortgage loan or something, well, then that gives the bank an incentive to uh, loan somebody money, right? They can um, repossess the collateral, right? Yeah. Uh, and a lender can figure out the likelihood that a borrower will pay back the loan uh, by looking at the borrower's credit history, for example. And so that allows there to be liquid markets for lending money, right? Um, investors can even cash out and perhaps uh, 
they can um, sell the loan, right? A creditor can sell the loan on a market. That's called securitizing mm. a loan, right? Uh, and they might forfeit future your interest payments uh, by doing that, but at least they have security in terms of getting paid uh, in real time uh, for whatever they, uh, the market feels the loan is worth. But if you think about selling a stock in yourself or equity in your earnings, that seems hard. And so therefore, maybe that solves some of this puzzle, right? Like, how much are you worth tomorrow? How can an investor assess your abilities and your work ethic and your tenacity, right? Um, it doesn't only depend on yourself, but the market and things beyond your control, the future. Same thing with a loan, but in, in the case of a loan, at least the interest rate can, can uh, capture that risk in a sense, right? And, and as I said, there are liquid markets where those um, loans can be bought and sold, but it doesn't seem that with equity markets to inv um uh, folks that are cash strapped, but that have potential that this is uh, th this solution has materialized, right? And another reason why this might be a problem is that investors can't get the information they need, perhaps, to monitor your effort or your ability to uh, do what you say you're going to do with the funding, your ability uh, to actually be motivated enough to grow that investment and to create upside for those uh, investors, right? For those folks financing whatever endeavor you're hoping to uh, fund with an equity stake in your future earnings or whatever um, you've got cooking uh, in terms of uh, why you, you would do this. Um, and, and then there's the age old problem with investors that take equity stakes that they can be defrauded. Like that's a big problem with corporations, for example, where investors get taken to the cleaner shareholders because the management or the uh, folks in charge of the money, you know, spend the money on uh, furniture or trip to trips to Vegas or something instead of actually uh, maximizing the returns for investors. Right. So um, the reason this is an interesting topic, according to Morgan and uh, Nick, and they'll tell us a little bit about something like this, the um, insurance pools. Uh, is that perhaps technology can help solve these problems. Maybe the digital footprints uh, that are left behind by uh, people can reveal whether they're a good investment or you can use technology to monitor their performance or at least ensure they're not going to commit fraud. In other words, maybe uh, some of these digital platforms or social media or even um, Bitcoin or uh, things like th of that nature could allow us to reduce the transaction costs of, of creating opportunities between people willing um, to, let's say, sell, sell shares in their uh, future uh, earnings or potential and people willing to buy those shares, people willing to take a risk and invest in the, uh, uh, somebody to get a future return. So hopefully I've teed you guys up, Morgan and Nick. Can you guys tell us about how the insurance pools either embody this idea or are a bit different and, and what you know about them. Great. Uh, let me first ask you, Victor, um, just to set us up completely, like why is knowledge so important all of a sudden? Why is it that these, um, uh, that human capital knowledge, um, software, soft skills, all of that plays so much more of an economic role these days? Because I think the initial um, jumping off point for this conversation was you saying, you know what, maybe this is a way for people to uh, fund their college education. Why is this something that is so, um, so necessary today? I mean, it's a complicated answer. 
And the thing I would say is that the information economy is all about intangible assets and that includes human capital right. that's a fancy word for the information in your head your ability to manipulate data your ability to work with artificial intelligence through machine learning algorithms to wring value out of data uh, and your ability in a sense to use soft skills and tangible uh, skills to let's say market things or find investment opportunities or create uh new configurations in the supply chain that might bring more value out of things um, in a global economy, especially. Right. Yeah. And you guys talk about how that has created winner takes all right. situations or at least superstar firms or superstar individuals that are highly productive. Can you guys take that idea and how it relates to information and tell us about these um, uh, um, insurance pools? Absolutely. Um Maybe, Morgan, you can speak to the insurance pools, and I'm just going to say a few words about the knowledge economy. I think it's really important to to get that clear in exactly the way that Victor says, right? I think, um, uh, yeah, knowledge, software, technology, all of those things that aren't really necessarily related to physical assets um, have dramatically increased in economic relevance and continue to do so, right, to the extent that, you know, and you can throw all kinds of statistics around, but like, you know, uh, I think the three, four uh, big tech or five big tech companies um, that are, you know, they have an annual revenue that is uh, sort of bigger than a lot of like G20 uh, economies, right? And I think so it's increasingly becoming the motor of the US economy, um, you know, things like life sciences also, right? Um, R&D in general, everything that is related to digital services are becoming more and more important. and. and we, ultimately drives wages across the economy in the US um, to the extent that jobs uh, of the same education level, if you if they are located around these high-tech clusters in say Seattle, San Francisco, New York, Austin also increasingly, you know, every all wages are higher in those clusters, uh, even for, for people who aren't really directly employed in those sectors. So this is really where it's at. So the big question is now, uh, what, what is the implication for um, for the economy as a whole? And I think here is really where insurance pools comes in, because one important element of this is, as Victor is saying, is that uh, scale plays a huge role because um, technology or, or rather like human capital power technology markets um, reward winners extraordinarily well and don't really leave much place for um, second or third place. Uh, products, which effectively creates winner-take-all markets, which I think Morgan can speak to how that uh, plays out with uh, an example of sports, which I think is most instructive. Or let me just uh, say two sentences about this, right? Like if you are in the NBA, you're going to be remunerated enormously, whereas not many people are going to go to their local uh, ball game anymore, right? So like when you recently had local monopolies to a certain extent for certain products, now you can get the very best product everywhere because we're digitally connected. So there aren't uh, as big of a rewards for second place anymore, but because everyone has access to the best product. Another example would be, uh, you know, search engines where everyone has access to the best search engine and you don't really have much business if you have the second, third or fourth best search engine. Uh, Morgan, how does that relate to the uh, insurance pools? Yeah, thanks for that. 
Nick and, and Victor, I, I would like to say that I don't uh, necessarily agree with your MBA example. I think the reason we haven't been able to monetize our own skills has to do with marketing. I don't know if, uh, if you've seen okay. our, our <laughs> just kidding. We, we're not very good. But um, <laughs> okay. the, yeah, so the reason that this has kind of caught on, the main income pools today take place in the sports fields, even though they're branching out to other markets, which we can talk about. And it has to do with the fundamental idea of uncertainty that you have both spoken to. And I think traditionally we think of income pools and income share agreements as mitigating uncertainty at the lower bound, where we're not sure if a crisis can come or when it's going to come. Um, and so this unpredictability allows people or encourages people to engage in agreements amongst one another so that if there is a crisis and one person's affected, they can share and then they will, you know, return the favor later on. And these, these forms of agreements are, you know, millennia old. And we see these for, uh, you know, small communities around the world. We see these in, in a lot of different areas on the lower bound. But what's different today, and you guys can speak to the market aspects. I know Victor has some interesting things to say about whether or not we actually are seeing winner-take market, uh, winner-take-all markets growing in this modern economy. But let's say that we are. The uncertainty that exists in these cases is actually at the top end. We aren't sure which of the venture capitalists are going to create firms that take off and make the next billion-dollar company. And if you take that as a given and you say, okay, one of these 50 people in this business group are going to make a billion dollars, then you can look around and say, okay, what if we all get together and whoever makes a billion at least shares a couple million with the rest of us? And that's essentially the idea for this. So coming back to the baseball example, which is one of the areas where we've seen income pools take off in recent years, the instructive example here is minor league baseball, in which players play for essentially minimum wage. Whereas professional baseball players, which is just one level up, make millions of dollars. The average annual salary is about $4 million, but it can get up to the hundreds of millions of dollars um, for individual player contracts. And so if you end up getting lucky or you, you know, hit a growth spurt or somebody on a professional team ends up getting injured and you get a chance and you succeed, you go from making minimum wage to millions of dollars overnight. What this has meant is that because of the unpredictability in who is going to make it over those hurdles, Baseball players have been encouraged to group with players of similar skill level in the minor leagues to take on income pool. We basically call them income pools. Whereas if any one player, let's say there's four catchers, if you know baseball, and one of them makes it, then the rest of them will have some earnings for the time they spend in the major leagues, even if they themselves don't make it. And so that's the essential idea with income pools. And there's a, a hope that these will grow into other areas of the economy. And um, I have a couple thoughts on why they could be successful, but it really does come down to the underlying belief that the economy itself is changing. It's making it less predictable to know who is going to be the large end earner in a particular group. So Victor, maybe you can speak to the idea of winner take all markets more holistically and why that might be the case in a more digital market. Well, I could, uh, let's see. I mean, it, it is true that that's happening. Um, the only thing I would say to complicate that is it's not happening uniformly. It's happening in some sectors much more than others. And ironically, what I've found in my own research is that actually it's happening in non-tech sectors, places that are less teched out much more. And the reason is because a few uh, of the players are able to 
exploit technology to gain an advantage over rivals that are late to the game, laggards in the acquisition or uptake of the technology. So it's actually in some of the old school places, uh, some old school sec sectors like furniture, agriculture, or um, um, manufacturing that's less uh, digital, uh, old school manufacturing um, stuff. Let's think about he heavy equipment that services uh, areas of the economy where there hasn't been much innovation or much disruption. It's firms in those areas that if they are able to develop IT or artificial intelligence or plug into uh, global supply chains using technology uh, through cloud computing, for example, in ways that their rivals aren't, they can leave them in the dust. So that's the only thing I'd say about that. But I don't think that actually makes your story about the income pools problematic at all. In that, if anything, it, sa it says this could uh, happen in places that well, we don't suspect it should happen, like agriculture, like, uh, again, um, manufacturing uh, areas that aren't very teched up or that don't come to mind as being associated with digital platforms or uh, any of that stuff. And so I would say the phenomenon is real and you definitely see it, I think, to uh, um, support my contention here that it's happening in, in surprising places in sports and entertainment where you don't really think of the digital marketplace that helps let's say amplify or distribute some of these superstars that are global uh if you think about uh i don't know the weekend that's a good example that performer from canada who was just played super bowl halftime a couple months ago um and uh, did a really good job, I feel, and has a mass following around the world. Someone like that, um, who was able to use technology, in fact, he was an internet sensation before he got any conventional record deal. He was able to use technology to really market himself and, and gain a, a wide audience around the world. So he would be an example if you were to rewind, uh, um, if you could find a way for him to collaborate with other uh, folks of his same talent or skills, but that were very uncertain about their future, that would have been maybe a good place to create an income pool. Or in a lot of the sports you mentioned, like minor league baseball, I'd imagine soccer, basketball, and there are other sports as well with global uh, followings where this could happen. So I, I do think that the idea of these winner takes all, although that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but winner takes a lot or, or most of the pie economies or economics does make sense for the context, right? But let me ask you guys to bring it back to the, not the income sharing agreements, but this thing about um, funding, uh, let's say your uh, college education or what have you, uh, or, or other um, skill acquisitions with uh, an equity-based finance model. What do you guys think about that um, idea based on what you know about the income uh, or uh, the insurance pools or the income sharing pools? Is this something that could catch on for the same reasons? Do you see technology helping this along? Do you guys know of any examples where folks are financing their college education, let's say, by not taking on debt, but by selling a share of their future earnings with investors? Yeah, so I think just to... Um, reiterate or to to add on what what Victor is saying. I think this is not nearly as abstract as you might think, right? Because because you effectively have digital supply chains, you have these um, systems that you can plug in, right? Where, for example, if you build a very successful digital business of whatever kind, 
you can scale extremely quickly because you can plug into um, supply chains that are already existing, right? You can use things like Amazon Web Services, for example, you can, which will, will help you with web hosting and whatnot, right? Which will effectively immediately enable you to access a global market, right? Which means that the upside that Morgan was speaking of is potentially huge, right? So for companies that make it, you can go from, from zero to infinity very quickly. So that's, I think, what we're all trying to communicate with when saying that the upsides are very, very high, right? Like maybe it's not a winner-take-all market, sure. Often, you know, you're creating new markets for products that didn't exist before. So this is not necessarily a zero-sum game by any chance. But the point is that, um, let's say, you know, you have five friends, right? And you're all um, ambitious and you, you're, you're trying to uh, build businesses. You want to make it big. Um, there's no way to really tell who, who of you is going to make it. Say you're all, I don't know, you're reasonably well-educated or potentially even at this stage, right? Where you're considering, um, should we go to college? Yes, no. Like how, how are we going forward here, right? You know, if, if you did do something like an income pool, right? The idea is really that, well, now we're, we're sort of hedging our bets and it's now so much more likely that we'll make a lot of money on average because um, the likelihood that I'll make it to that scale is maybe relatively low. But if I uh, pool my uh, potential future income with 10 other people, then it's actually a lot higher. So that, that's the basic idea. Morgan, do you want to say something uh, about that first or react to what Victor was saying? Sure. No, I think that's exactly right. I think Victor, on in terms of the, the income share agreements, which are different than the income pools, the examples that I know, at least the ones that I've seen, are to do with education, as, as you said. And a lot of them are with for-profit colleges, which seems to make a lot of sense to me. If you are going to go back to school or are going to take out a lot of loans to take on a college education, it seems that a college offering you an option on payback that would come from your future earnings based on the degree you gain would be a very fair way of the college saying, look, we trust our own programs. We think that we are going to equip you with the skills that you need to succeed in this industry. So you don't need to pay us anything or maybe you only need to just pay us a minor amount up front. And in the long run, you pay us back for the skills you receive. Right, and if you, and um, if and, you don't do well, mm-hmm. they don't get paid at all, right? So they have skin in the game for you to do well, right? Exactly. So it, it makes a ton of sense to me. And that's why I think in the, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of schools, not just for-profit schools. I think Purdue University has used this for undergraduates as well. Um, and some of the controversy has come in on how to value various majors because there were some people who were um, annoyed that you know certain arts degrees wouldn't be worth as much as a business degree. But if it's an investment, then that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that it actually seems almost more fair in some of these cases that the school would be on the hook for its own uh, quality of education than a loan, which wouldn't necessarily be repaid to you individually. Right. And again, they benefit on the upside. If you Mm -hmm. do really well, then they make out like bandits. And so do you. I mean, there's an incentive alignment there, right? This also might give you some additional information, right? This is price signaling, right? If if certain majors um, give you different prices, that might give you some additional information, which might be hard to come by in when you, you you're making a decision about what to invest in in terms of your skills Absolutely. you mean it, it'll tell students about the value of the degree because you'll see investors exactly. flocking to degrees where they think they're going to make a, a high return exactly well let me ask you guys a question why can't private venture capitalists or just 
mom and dad investors invest in people in the same way. Why is it the school that also has to finance and provide education? So if you think of a, of a disintegrated market, it would be like any investor could buy an equity stake in a student if they think the future potential is there. Is that possible? What do you guys think about that? I mean, this sounds a bit futile, uh, but I'm sure that- Like, like futili feudalism or futile, like it's not uh, going to work? Like feudalism. Uh -huh. um, but I mean, obviously that would depend a little bit on what exactly the contract is. Um, like, do you envision this as something that um, people would then be sort of on the hook for, as in like you, you own equity in me as a person? Meaning if I don't perform, right? Like, I mean, you were alluding to some ideas earlier about potential performance tracking that sound a bit, I don't know, like the Chinese um, social credit system. Well, um, again, I mean, if you don't perform, that was just a bad investment on my part because I don't get anything back. Like, that's the beauty in a sense that makes it non-feudal, right? Because there is no commitment where you right. have to pay back. In fact, you might think of a loan as more feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L, than an equity stake because you have to pay back a loan no matter what, plus the interest, obviously, right. which compensates the creditor for the for the risk and for the inflation, the uh, uh, loss of uh, uh, their capital with inflation over time, right? So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if ex ante any one system is more feudal or more oppressive or whatever than any other. And you could build in guardrails. For example, you could put in earnings right. floors and earnings mm -hmm. ceilings, right? Like if you make below a certain amount, you don't have to pay the investor anything. And if you make above a certain ceiling, you could make it in a sense regressive right if you yeah. if you make above a certain um uh uh ceiling you don't have to pay anything on that marginal dollar above the ceiling right it's only within that bandwidth whatever that is uh, it, as you, you said it depends on the contract you write don't you think i think the the contract idea is the exact right issue a lot of these articles on this have noted that this is such a, a nascent kind of infrastructure in the american system legislatively that I think we could see this explode if the first couple cases go the way of the lender in this case. So mm -hmm. I do think there's currently a massive issue with repayment. I think if you fought the issue, the payback of a certain um, loan, let's say you take out one of these income share agreements, you hit the jackpot and suddenly you're on the hook for you know, five million dollars. Oh, you mean on that? You mean on the insurance pooling thing, not on what we just said about the income? I mean, either way, I, I jackpot uh -huh. figuratively. Let's say you get a, you know, you start a firm and suddenly you're making lots of money. Either way, you could you could end up making way more if you didn't have uh, a ceiling put in the contract. A lot of the past agreements that weren't as legally driven ended up not fulfilling their contract. And so I think a lot of effort in recent years on these issues has been spent trying to make sure that the contracts are extremely sound. And I think that once we see some of these start to come through, because remember, mm. I mean, the reason we haven't seen them, even though we're, they're new, th these people have to get their degree, go through, and then make money and then pay it back over 10 years. It's just going to take a while before we actually see the returns and these legal issues come to the fore. And so I think that is one of the major things kind of holding it back from becoming a mainstream investment strategy. Well, what do the contracts look in baseball? Have you guys taken a look under the hood? What 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 are yeah. they like? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Morgan, go ahead. Yeah, so I, a lot of them do have exactly like you said. They have ceilings and they have floors, and they're usually based on a number of years. So you wouldn't necessarily be on the hook for your entire career. 
maybe their first two years in the majors, you pay back a certain amount up to a, a ceiling. Um, and so they do have these, these buffers to keep you from being totally um, taken out of it. I think a lot of the issue with people uptake, although it's been very successful in minor league baseball, there hasn't really been as much of an issue now that they've kind of gotten through the norm of this being uh, typical in the area. Is this the kind of novelty of these agreements more particularly, not necessarily the actual return, which tends to be uh, quite positive in my opinion. Um, there's, and there's the idea of, I, I wanted to mention this before we go too much further, the adverse selection effects that you're talking about, which we haven't really dug into. Um, if you have to pay back 5% of your earnings for the next five years after college, there's a huge incentive for you to take a more fulfilling job and maybe a less financially uh, viable job in the first five years and then switch over as soon as your agreement is up. And so that's something that a lot of these companies have expressed to me that they're worried about. Uh, Amos has uh, raised his hand. Hello, sorry, I've been traveling for like the past 12 hours. So I'm feeling a little bit scatterbrained. Um, so one of the things that kind of struck me the wrong way about this whole uh, equity style of education investment was the idea that it basically prioritizes personal connections that a lot of students might not be able to get in the first place. Even if it becomes mainstream, isn't there the possibility that it might disproportionately advantage those who already have or can avail the avail themselves of resources that most normal students are unable to. So yeah. this is a great point, Amos. Um, so Morgan and I both uh, talked to Pendo Pooling, by the way, great shout out to Pendo Pooling, who is uh, at the absolute cutting edge of this. And so what they express is that interestingly, the main reason why they have seen a lot of people outside of minor league baseball become interested in this is because this is an actually a democratizing the access to business networks in exactly the opposite way that you're expressing concern, Amos. Because what these uh, income pools effectively do is they allow people who are driven and who want to succeed to find other people in that are not necessarily in their geographic, uh, direct geographic proximity. Um, to build a pool with them, right? Who have similar interests, who might be able to help each other out, who um, enable each other uh, to give uh, to give each other access to resources and their and their networks and connections, um, in a way that usually only people who already have a lot of money have access to, right? Remember that if you already have a lot of money, it's unlikely that you're going to be part of any of these pools in the first place. Um, you know, in the same way, you know, venture capital is is something that is democratizing the access to to early stage startup funding, right? If you have a ton of money, you don't need venture capital. So, so I don't think this is a concern, to be honest. I think this is actually um, having the opposite effect. Morgan, sorry, I was interrupting you there at the start. Uh, I was going to say something very similar. I think one of the the issues we haven't talked about here, so I'll talk a little bit to the the, pen, the pooling side of that, and then the the income share agreements. On the pooling side, I think Nicholas is exactly right. I think one of the the major benefits that has come from this is the, the social agglomeration that has been enabled by kind of online connections and online pooling with groups. So one of the major benefits they've seen is not just from you know, maximizing your potential earnings, but is actually in being able to speak with other people within your pool that you otherwise would not have met or otherwise would be in a different city who have similar ideas or investing in similar areas of the economy. On the income um, sharing side or the income share agreements, I think 
you have some fair concerns. I think if, if universities were giving out investments in individuals, then like had Victor had mentioned, then I certainly see, think you could see a perpetuation of inequality. But if it's universities as it is now, where anyone who gets into the program is given the opportunity or the option to take this on, I actually think people who would be much more willing to not take out loans are gonna be those people who are less financially well off. I don't necessarily think it works one way or the other, um, one other thing I'll say on that is inequality side of this is certainly something that they're looking into, and they are trying to figure out ways for this to work on the low end as well. So we've talked about the uncertainty on the high end, who gains from these types of arrangements. But on the low end, they're actually really trying to figure out if this can serve as an alternative welfare system where groups of people who are in the gig economy or in farming, um, basically legalizing these communal processes uh, where if you have a down year, you can take out of a communal fund um, to cover your rent, whereas you would pay back in um, if you have a bumper crop in any uh, particular industry. So I think there are ways to make it sustainable for large cohorts of people. but I think that's a lot of based on what industry you're in and who has access to the initial funding. Just a quick reaction to double down on Amos's worry though. It does seem that in some markets where there's venture capital funding, let's say, or where there's uh, even public markets where uh, you can buy and sell shares, there are some firms that gain this mystique or this uh, special halo and they end up crowding out other firms sometimes if you think about Tesla, for example, especially during a potential bubble, right? Uh, Elon Musk, whatever he touches is like Midas, right? It turns to gold, it seems, with, uh, with um, investors. And therefore, I do wonder if some superstar, let's say, students would be able to outbid or, or at least out... Uh, uh, market other students and get an outsized share of the uh, uh, of the equity in the uh, not of the equity but of the capital right in in this situation, and and I do think this goes back to information. As long as there's information about people's ability, potential, work ethic, and and drive, I think that would be okay. That may smooth things out and create more uh, equality, but. I do wonder if there's less information, if this is what would happen, you'd get really, uh, let's say binary markets with with, with a few people uh, getting a lot of attention and financing and a whole bunch of other people uh, being excluded. What do you guys think about that? The connection to information? Absolutely, I mean, I think, isn't that how it works now? Like if, if I have lots of connections or my family is fairly wealthy, I think I can essentially come up with a halfway decent idea and, and find funding. I think there's a lot of this going on in the world today, just not formally through a lot of legal systems. I think if you're worried about crowding out on that end, that's where I think, or why I think you see cohorts coming together in these pooling industries. It's not that individuals, anyone with a business degree is coming together to form a pool often. That does happen actually because of the social component, but it's more likely that it's a group of people who are graduating in the same cohort who look around and say, okay, we have a similar uh, potential earning uh, ability here in this group, like the baseball players, players who are drafted in the first round are very unlikely to, to pool with players who are drafted in the sixth or seventh round. I think you're absolutely right. The reason we've seen it in baseball more than other sports is because baseball is incredibly statistical. It's based entirely around how your average is played, how many home runs you hit. You can quantify nearly everything. And so if you know, you're most likely, I would say if we looked it up and you had to define statistics on individual entrepreneurs, 
the most likely predictor of your success is probably connections and familial wealth. And so there's certainly that issue. That's why I think the agreement to join these types of pools can help you, although it's not necessarily overcoming uh, the pre-existing detriments of these sorts of strategies, if that makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree with Morgan, right? I think one of the facts, I suppose, or the emerging facts of the knowledge economy is that it's not just education, it's not just a college degree that matters. It's really be having access to these ecosystems of um, you know, people that know the industry, like these thick labor markets where you have, uh, where you meet people, you know, in, uh, I don't know, in the, on the weekend on baseball games that are in your industry and all that stuff. And, um, you know, being exposed to knowledge spillovers from different industry that you can then, you know, um, synergize and adapt and whatnot, right? I think that's really where it's at. And I think having access to those kind of um, ecosystems is at least as important as your actual um, knowledge that you gain in a degree. So the real question is like, how do you democratize access to those kind of things? And I think here, you know, these income pools really have something to say, and maybe th those are part of um, the kinds of um, institutional adaptations that would allow, yeah, societies to adapt to this new situation, right? And to, to allow people to have more access to these things, because right now, I think it's really as Morgan is saying, right? Like either you're somehow born into those in, uh, environments. It's um, to a certain extent, apparently part of um, where you're born, right? Like either you somehow, uh, yeah, you grow up in a city, you grow up in a certain environment, or you somehow do have enough money to have, to be able to live in San Francisco, right? Which not everyone uh, is able to do that. And, um, but, you know, conceivably more people would be able to join those kinds of pools and thereby, you know, through, digital means gain access to those kinds of networks. And, you know, it's not just these income pools who do this, right? I feel like you can interpret LinkedIn as, as a similar attempt, right? To try to um, come up with new ways through digital technology and um, social media platforms to allow people to be able to, um, yeah, gain access to those kinds of networks, which are really incredibly important to, um, uh, to, to succeed in business ultimately. Well, what's very interesting is that venture capital, in a sense, tries to connect entrepreneurs into networks that can help them, right? Exactly. If, yeah. if an investor sees potential, one of the biggest things they bring to the table isn't only the equity, isn't only the yeah. capital investment, but it's the yeah. knowledge and it's the know-how and it's the network they bring along too. And so maybe this system could also work that way. Let's say if I find the student who I think is incredibly gifted or at least works very hard and has a lot of potential, uh, I could help introduce them to my network. And I already do that as a professor, but as an investor, you'd have even more of an incentive to do it and right. maybe even a more valuable network and you would follow through because you'd get something on the upside. What I get on the upside is seeing students succeed and having my ego feel good, but also just feeling good about the world and, and my job and whatever. But you can imagine that if investors did this and had some money on the line and skin in the game, it would be even more effective. They could even collaborate with professors. In fact, professors could tell them, you know, I see this potential in this student. They've done amazing work. They're going places. They have an amazing work ethic, right? So I do wonder if the networks would follow the markets. Yeah, I, I think we've seen that in the, in the income pooling, uh, at least that from what I've been told and from what I've seen firsthand, part of the benefit that a lot of people see 
from joining these pools is not necessarily even about the long-term earnings, but the connections you make when you have a group of 50 people who are all financially invested in your success. I wonder, Amos, do you have a follow-up? A little yeah. bit to the, not, uh, to the topic of about like two weeks ago, I guess, Now, Yeah, go ahead. Um, Just to remind everybody, we talked about the minimum wage and social insurance and mechanisms to raise uh, workers' pay, right? The go question ahead. I would like to raise is kind of, a solution to what problem once again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, so the the concept of i'm not gonna knock on the concept of uh somehow making it more affordable for certain students to attend college by essentially selling equity shares in themselves to afford college but the underlying issue is that would in that question be that college is simply too expensive mm -hmm. I, I feel like trying to raise money on our end to afford college by essentially selling equity shares is kind of pointing the solution in the wrong direction if you kind of get my drift mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the problem is the cost of college and that's the solution we need is what you're saying yes I think that's a good point yeah so i think that's a good point right i think on the one hand you you want to try to maximize access um, make sure that as many people can go to college as possible but i do want to stress oh. right that if if i had the opportunity to uh sell certain shares of my future earnings to um i don't know people who uh yeah do, who have a certain uh, network i would not hesitate for a second to do that because of exactly the dynamics that morgan and victor were stressing it's not just about me I don't know, maybe uh, gaining a degree a little bit cheaper. It's really me putting money down to have someone else who is already successful in the field being invested in my success financially, right? Because that's really uh, what's so attractive here, right? That now, you know, I've effectively uh, made sure that someone else is going to be actively engaged in mentoring me and putting me, uh, giving me the right connections, pushing me in the right direction and all that stuff. So I think it's it's really, this is really important, I think, to 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 realize that it's not just about um, the money, right? It's it's really about the connections because that's so important in the knowledge economy. Yeah, uh, oh, but I also wanted to stress that the the reason I bring that kind of question up is the is related to my earlier question as to the kind of tendency towards, uh, or I, what I would perceive as a tendency towards favoring those who already have those connections. And while I understand that that might not always be the case, um, the kind of, or by not dealing with the underlying issue of uh, educational costs, it kind of both restricts access by essentially making it easier for certain people to attend college and at the same time makes it so that certain fields of study are thereby comparatively more attractive because of the potential of these kind of investors being thereby kind of like restricting the field of, or restricting the potential students of every kind of, of, of fields of study in general, depending on their potential lucrativity. Yeah, I think that I, I makes think... total sense. It would divert, right? I, it would divert attention, resources, uh, human capital into those endeavors that have a higher upside, right, guys? Is that not how it works now? I, I don't know. If, I mean, there's a reason more individuals are joining business programs today than other forms of programs. That, I, I think it's more of an exacerbation of existing trends. I think he, Amos has a great point about the low end. When we're talking about low end uncertainty. The reason you have to come up with alternative financial arrangements is because of the institutions that persist. 
right? If this was a perfect share economy and we had a, an amazing welfare system, you wouldn't necessarily be as worried about covering costs in uh, you know, a healthcare crisis. At the high end though, I'm not sure that I agree as much because it's more about maximizing uh, the distribution of gains amongst a group of social um, entrepreneurs than it is about- You mean minimizing the variance, right? They're yeah. maximizing by being in the superstar economy, but you're minimizing the variance yeah. for any one person in the pool. Right, yes. go ahead, so, sorry to be so pedantic, continue. No, I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, I completely agree with Amos. Like if, if you have different institutions, if we're in you know, a perfect communist society where everyone receives equal gains and you redistribute benefits, this type of arrangement wouldn't work or wouldn't be um, attractive in any way because it wouldn't necessarily lead to any differences. So it, it's definitely based on the fact that we have these underlying inequalities, the underlying systems, and it's a way of maximizing gains within those constraints. So I think he certainly has a point about, you know, kicking, this might be kicking the, the, the stone down the road a little bit um, if we're trying to make systemic change, which is why it's, it's more of a individual maximization than it is about systemic. You know, I wonder if it's not mutually exclusive because you could think of a situation where you could subsidize higher education or even make it free, I guess, in Bernie Sanders' uh, world, right? Or in the world of Denmark or uh, Sweden. Free but, to the purchaser. Yeah. Of course, nothing is free. Someone has to finance it with taxes, right? Or debt that exactly. is financed by taxes of future generations. But I wonder if you could do that and still have this ability for investors to get uh, uh, something on the upside in folks that they see have great potential, right? Um, it could still very well be the case that I don't pay any money for my college degree or I pay a reduced price, but yet an investor says, well, I'll give you... Let's write a contract where um, I give you money to uh, make yourself even more proficient or even more productive. And then um, you're going to give me a dividend out of your future paycheck or something like that. So I do wonder if you could do both, right? You could have a, a very strong safety net, a very strong social insurance, maybe subsidize education or bring down the costs, but yet still have the benefits of the network, of the knowledge, of the mentorship and of someone having skin in the game and, and making sure to cultivate your potential in, in the way you guys said. Absolutely, you said it much more eloquently than me, than I, but I agree. I think it's more about capturing the upside than it is about uh, sustaining the downside or worrying about the downside. You know, um, in, in some way, free education is kind of like a societal income pooling, maybe in some way, where you, we're really trying to capture societal upsides from people becoming doctors, right? Where the social gain is so much higher than the gain that that accrues to the individual. When we uh, collectively educate someone to be a really, really good doctor, uh, obviously, you know, that, that person is going to be very fulfilled and it's going to be intellectually challenged and going to make a lot of money um, and are going to enjoy their job or whatever. Um, but also they're, they're going to like make sure that people's lives uh, are better and longer and uh, healthier. So I think here the, the social upside is huge. Um, and the reason uh, so, so that, therefore, you can argue, you know, like, why, why are we putting up barriers to people doing that? And it's not just doctors, right? Like everyone who is human capital we're uh, improving is going to be so much more productive in making everyone else's lives better. So, so why are we putting up barriers to that? Why don't we uh, share some resources to make sure and enable people to do that? Well, you know, to be fair, I don't think anyone's putting up barriers. I think that what we've said in, to start this off is that information's not there for the investor to match up with the person seeking 
to make the deal that, that says, I will give you a proportion of my income going forward, right? I think that's been the major impediment. It's technology, right? Um, which is why you see lending markets that are very robust and liquid and, and healthy and the like. Well, obviously, they are subsidized by the government and taxpayers, but yet you do see lending markets at least because we know how to do that. Again, you don't get anything on the upside, but at least you get uh, pretty firm payments and an interest on, on the money loaned out. But on this equity thing, as we said, it's like, how do you measure someone's potential or how do you write the contract so that they don't renege on it? Or how do you make sure they have the right motivation so that they work at the, let's say, investment bank and pay you back on, on the investment you think you're making, right? I would think those are the barriers that still, even with the technology we have today, I don't see the solution to those things. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You guys mentioned baseball statistics. Okay, that's one place, but that, that's an exception that proves the rule. Go ahead, Nick. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I mean, I think you cut me off at the right uh, moment because I'm not really sure I have any solutions, right? I think I can just uh, sort of elaborate on the problem, I guess. Because, I mean, if I'm an investor in a, in a business that is physical in some sense, right? Like if, if I invest in... Um, I don't know, like a like a like a taxi business, for example, right? And I buy a whole bunch of cars. Bad to sit, bad bad idea these days. But go ahead. Exactly. And then you. Uber, <laughs> right? And then Uber comes along and puts yeah. me out of business. Right. I mean, at the very least, I have a physical asset where there's a secondary market that I can resell. Right. right? So I'm going. So I'm going to recuperate some of my investment costs, which means that I'm going to be more willing to invest in the first place, right? Because mm -hmm. I can I can like I re recoup some of my investment. If I invest a whole bunch of money in Morgan, um, and you know Morgan reneges on my contract in some way, right, or doesn't doesn't perform, I guess, um, then what, right? Like like I, I, I obviously can't resell that in in any way, right? Because it would be worthless. Because like even if say that there was a secondary market for my investment stake in in Morgan's future earnings. And I well, there would be in a healthy liquid market. That's exactly what would happen. You'd be able to share your stake, sell your stake to me, right? If sure, but like, to. would you be willing to to buy that? If, if I mean, say like you know, and and you know, this was a contract that goes over ten years, and you know, after nine years, Morgan has. Um, not made really over like any money that would recuperate my cost. Would you buy that? I, mean, I would, but you know, work. this is where Amos's critique is incredibly incisive because that would mean there'd be prices on people, right? Because what happens with a share, right? In a company, there's a price, there's a market value, and therefore investors know what it's worth, right? And they know what the scrap value is of whatever stranded assets there are or, or, or assets that are highly specific because the share price reflects that, right? Um, so I think that that would be the problem. Now that I'm thinking about it, that's a fundamental problem is the ethical dilemma of doing that, right? right. Maybe the technology is there, but people would just shy away from it or recoil at the idea that we'd each have a price affixed to us, right? Uh, I see that as a huge impediment. I don't know, Amos, do you want to speak to that? Uh, definitely. I would. <laughs> I would definitely agree with the idea that there are some moral issues with the idea of putting, you know, a price tag on what someone might be worth later on in the future, especially since just kind of trying to estimate what someone might earn as, uh, as they complete their education and sort of begin putting back into the paying, paying out towards the investment is kind of, it sits wrong with me just on the face of it. And I feel like that I might not be unique in that kind of case. 
Um, this is all pretty theoretical, I suppose, at this point. But I think, you know, Amos, you're completely right that um, there, there are a lot of like weird uh, sounding elements to this, right? But at the same time, I would say, you know, it's even worse than that in the sense that um, I don't, the, the market is going to fail before it even um, becomes into existence because the problem is that you cannot price your assets, right? Like I'm going to be extremely hesitant to invest in anything where I have no idea how to price it. So I think that that's really the issue. Like we're, we're not even at the extent at the, at the point where the market would even happen, right? Because um, I, I wouldn't have enough information to be able to price the assets, even if they, even if we sort of like put the ethical uh, issues here aside and say, like, we're going to say, you know, you're not owning a person, obviously, but you're just owning an equity stake in a person's future earnings, right? That those right. are two very thing, right. different but things. But here's the deal, Nick, and to wrap things up, if you don't mind, um, I have two final thoughts here. I think that with technology, the way it's headed, we will be able to price that in that the digital footprint and machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence will help us do that. Well, now I think, I'm back with Amos, though. That sounds extremely creepy. And that's where Amos's critique as a second order about the surveillance and information processing and sharing. I think that more than the price, because the, the price doesn't necessarily... You know, the price could be uh, made uh, anonymous, right? The way you anonymize metadata, right? It could be made um, anonymous in the same way that Bitcoin is anonymous, right? Uh, uh, with, with that kind of technology, with that ledger system that's digital. But it could be the case that the amount of surveillance and information processing is really what gets people and privacy and, and the like and the misuse of that. Uh, so that could be one thing. And I know we're speculating about future markets, but I do think that what's happening is the technology, we're at the cusp of it, perhaps solving the pricing problem because the information will be there. And then it'll be about the transaction cost of matching uh, investors with folks willing to sell that equity stake. But my final thought here is about how this is kind of, uh, and especially the income insurance pools that you guys wrote about when it comes to baseball, less this individualized stuff we're talking about with the income sharing arrangements. The income uh, insurance pools are uh, back to the future in that if you think of human society, a lot of human society until modern times, until the industrial revolution, until urbanization was based on extended families, clans, networks that were based on religion or based on community or based on uh, small networks, dense uh, networks uh, of very strong ties. And a lot of that, its function is to help pool risk, right? To reduce the variance when it comes right. to uh, shocks, when it comes to unpredicted uh, a catastrophe, when it comes to pe people getting sick or droughts or famines or wars or uh, theft or whatever it is that could go wrong, whether you're an agriculturalist or whether you're a trader conducting trade at long distances, right? So it's almost back to the future in that we've kind of weakened these links to our second cousin or third uh, uh, cousin or great aunt, right? Or these links to community or links to clans or tribes or whatever held us together. And in the wake of that, there has been this issue of dealing with uncertainty and risk. And now there's all these new market mechanisms, but in a sense, some of them aren't market mechanisms. These in income insurance pools are networks, right? Some of uh, what goes on. So I, I just think it's ironic or, or a delicious irony of history that we're, we're kind of returning to that mode in a sense. Do you guys have any final thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I was trying to get at earlier when I was speaking about the low end uncertainty, right? It's all these communities were 
built in a way where it would limit their upside potential because as soon as you have a great crop yields, you need to share it with other members of your community who didn't. That's the bargain you get into where you get stuck in this equilibria. Um, and I think we've found a way to get beyond that, but it's also led us into to basically encourage institutions that don't necessarily preserve those fundamental systems. Um, and so we're creating new ways to build those up, especially as the market becomes more volatile and not less volatile. Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, economists might can be really unromantic, right? But marriage is, is an institution that functions a lot like that. And I think, you know, anyone's uh, extended friend group, it has a lot in common with these income pools, right? Where it's like, I don't have to necessarily own a big truck that can uh, that I can use to move, right? I just have to have some friends and some of them uh, might have uh, access to such a vehicle and thereby I have access, right? So I'm using sort of my extended network to, to yeah, just give me more access to things I wouldn't otherwise have. And it's exact, exactly what you're saying, Victor, right? It's just um, a new mechanism to do something that is very old, possibly a little bit more efficiently and for a very specific function. Well, I wonder if the gig economy will destroy friendship when, when any, anyone can just rent like a machinery or a truck or whatever, like the Airbnb of like tools, right? Or even plates or silverware. I, I find myself borrowing silverware a lot. Uh, or of course, spices or uh, milk or eggs or sugar, right? Yeah, that's so, a really uh, interesting point, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's similar to like maybe, you know, Zoom or things like that might disrupt just chance encounters, right? Maybe... You know, these kind of things will disrupt the, the need for that, that you have for, for your friends to some extent, right? Like, right. Maybe, like you said, it's ungeographic. Un yeah. You can just create a pool with people anywhere, right? Well, Brave New World, guys, uh, this was super interesting. I think we make quite the quartet here together. Uh, I, I think there was a lot of dynamism and, and creativity in this uh, conversation. I hope we can do it again. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.